Yeah, this entire Christian life, the journey of faith, it's all about being like Jesus, isn't it? At the end of the day, all of our efforts, uh, all of our study of the scriptures, all of the teaching and training and, and ministry and service, it's all a part of the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. When we talk about sanctification in the church, that, that lifelong process of becoming fully submitted to God in every area of our lives, that process of sanctification, it really just simply means we're becoming more like Jesus Christ every day. And if we're not, then we're not being sanctified, which means somewhere along that road of following Him, we veered off onto another path. And typically, uh, that other path is one that is self-directed rather than Jesus-led. We like making our own way. We like forging our own path. Uh, we're Americans. We like doing our own thing. Uh, but I think we're often misled, even by our own egos sometimes, to believing that the road that we're on is somehow different. You know, it's a new way. It's unique. It's a special path that we've chosen when in truth, any road that isn't the way of Christ is the wide road. It's the one that the majority of the people are on. And so even though we may believe that we're making our own way through this life, if we're not following Him, we're simply following the masses, the crowd that says your own way is the best way. And although that way may often seem different, it is in reality just another lane on the same wide road that the majority of the people choose. It's the way that's self-serving. It's self-focused. It's self-everything. The truly unique path through this life, the one that most people do not choose, is the way of Christ. That is the narrow road that travels against every common convention, every cultural norm, every intuitive behavior of human beings who are inherently selfish. The Jesus-led path is one uniquely carved out for each one of us by God, and it is the only path that we can take that can promise true fulfillment. That's part of the miracle of being a child of God, and we talked about this last week. When we submit our lives to Christ and yield our will to His and place our faith in Him alone, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us and we're fundamentally changed forever. And it truly is a miracle and it's made possible only by the power and the goodness of God. And that is then evidenced by the behavior that follows. Once our hearts are regenerated, once we become new creations in Christ, we begin to behave counterintuitively to a society that prizes personal gain over the greater good. We seek first the kingdom of God before our own needs. We serve others before we serve ourselves. We sacrifice our will in deference to His. We find freedom in complete subjugation to a king makes no sense to the world. In His kingdom, the first become last and the last become first. We love our enemies. We forgive those who don't deserve it. We're kind to those who are unkind to us. We treat others better than we treat ourselves. We give away all that we have to bless others and to advance His kingdom, His will, what He's doing in this earth. The life of a Christ follower makes no sense to the rest of the world. And that should come as no surprise. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, 
And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Okay? So those who have the Spirit of God living inside of them are able to discern the things of God by that same Spirit inside of us. He directs us and he guides us through life. Those who are without God are without spiritual discernment and therefore the life of the, the Christ follower makes no sense to them. And this concept of being guided through life with the spiritual insight or the spiritual vision that we have by way of that Holy Spirit living inside of us, it really begins to take center stage in, in chapter 10 of Acts as we see God speaking not only to Peter, a Hebrew follower of Christ, but to a prominent member of Roman society, someone who is completely outside of the inner circle of Jesus. And so as we continue our sermon series today, the Acts of the Apostles, as we work our way through the book of Acts, we're going to talk about this spiritual insight or discernment that we have as followers of Christ in our sermon today entitled, When God Speaks. And just to be clear, when we refer to the uh, ability that we have as believers to recognize or discern uh, His voice and His leading in our lives, we're talking about spiritual ability not natural ability, okay? It's really important that as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand the difference because the world follows what it discerns in the natural, while believers follow what we discern in the spiritual, okay? And it's not that he never uses the natural to direct us. He certainly does, but that natural working is always a consequence, it's a secondary outcome to what is happening in the Spirit. Okay, When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, the Father was using natural events, an innocent man being killed publicly, to accomplish a spiritual purpose, which is by far the greater story. Namely, the Son of God overcoming the sins of the world by becoming a propitiation for our sins. He took on all of our guilt and paid a price that we could not pay. That was a spiritual event with natural consequences, not the other way around. Okay, God is spirit. He's not confined to the natural realm. In John 4.24, Jesus explains that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's the same reason in uh, Exodus 24 that God commands Israel not to make idols in the form of anything in creation because he cannot be confined to any created thing. It is offensive and in every way against God to attempt to equate him with any created thing because he is spirit and he's above all and he's over all and he's the creator of all. And so this spiritual being sovereign over all things. He communicates to us through His Holy Spirit living inside of us. In fact, that is the only way that we can ever hope to rightly discern or understand the Holy Scriptures by way of the Holy Spirit revealing to our spirit the truth of what we read and study. That is spiritual discernment. And it's something that we must understand and remain open to if we're going to be able to remain on that narrow path. The one that leads to the ultimate truth. Because the guidance that we receive from our Father in Heaven comes by way of a Spirit who was sent to lead us and empower us and to carry out this mission for life. And yet that unseen, supernatural, if you will, understanding confounds the world. Because the world only sees and hears with natural ability. 
In John 8, 47, Jesus said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Okay? There is no true spiritual insight for those living without the Spirit inside of them. And so we're going to work our way through uh, probably two-thirds of chapter 10 of Acts today, and we'll talk about the voice of God in our lives. And just to set the stage for this next portion of our story, chapter 10 is probably one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament because it relates this world-changing moment where the Gentiles, a group of people previously without any eternal hope, excluded from the covenant that God made with Abraham and Moses, now being included as beneficiaries, recipients of the redemptive work of Christ, the mystery of Christ was now being revealed to the Gentiles and the hope of salvation extended to all who would believe, regardless of their ethnicity or socioeconomic status or their previous beliefs, because all of the barriers to membership in the family of God, save that of personal unbelief, were now being shattered as the invitation to the body of Christ was being offered freely to anyone who would choose to accept it. And Obviously, the ramifications of this extraordinary moment in history are profoundly relevant to all of us here today, unless you're a Messianic Jew like Peter, because the rest of us are Gentiles and, and would not have been able to rightfully claim our status as heirs with Christ, children of God, members of the body of Christ, had it not been for chapter 10 of Acts, where God reveals the full consequences of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, uh, the fact that his redemptive work applies to all of mankind, not just the Hebrew people. And so, how did he choose to reveal this world-shaking information for the first time? By speaking to his followers through spiritual means, which were then confirmed in the natural, by natural means. So without question, the primary thrust of Acts chapter 10 is the inclusion of the Gentiles in his redemptive plan. But there's also a very compelling and important byline here, a secondary story within the bigger narrative, which is somewhat less obvious, but nonetheless relevant, a life lesson about what we are to do when God speaks. All right, and so as we work through this chapter, we're going to play, uh, pay close attention to both sides, both of these ideas. So let's read it together. We'll start on Acts, in Acts chapter 10, right on verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God, okay? So just some background on our first character in the story here. Cornelius was a centurion in the Roman military. He was a commander of about 100 men. And he was a member of the Italian cohort. A cohort typically consisted of 600 men under the command of six centurions. And 10 cohorts made up a legion, which of course was then 600 soldiers strong. So any centurion would be an important officer in the military at that time. And they were paid far more than the average soldier. Sometimes as much as five times more than the ordinary soldier. But Cornelius was a member of the Italian cohort, which was a particularly elite regiment. It was located in Caesarea, which was the seat of the Roman government of Judea. 
So Cornelius was clearly a very socially prominent, respected, and wealthy member of the Roman military. And because he feared the one true God, he had even garnered a measure of respect among the Jews, as we'll see. And then as we keep reading, we begin to learn some lessons about spiritual discernment. And the first is that when God speaks, He guides us into new territory. All right? God has a plan for this world. Uh, He has a plan for your life, in fact. And that is a fact. His fingerprints are all over this earth and all over each one of us. Uh, We may choose not to accept that, but it's the truth. And we've established that over the past several weeks. uh, So we won't go back through that now. But without a doubt, there is a plan... And his plan is never stagnant. It's never static. God is always on the move. And his plan is always moving forward. There's always more to be done. And there always will be until that great day when he returns to call each uh, each of us to account. And so this journey of following Christ is something that is fluid. It's moving. That's why we're called followers of Christ and not believers of Christ. Right? We certainly do believe in Jesus Christ, but so do the Muslims, so do the Jews, so do the, the demons, so does the devil himself. You can believe in Jesus and not be a follower of Jesus. You understand? And just as a side note, by the way, I personally believe uh, that very status of believing but not following has become a spiritual epidemic in the American church. Amen. Just about everybody in the church believes in Jesus. But how many are actually following Him? And I fear the answer to that question might shock most of us. Because there's a difference. There is a difference between simply believing and following. True followers of Christ are always on the move. Because the one that we follow is always guiding. He's guiding us into new territory to accomplish His purposes in this world. Let's continue. We'll read about it. Verse 3. And... About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants uh, and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, up to this point in Scripture, we see angels interacting with God's people in various places throughout the Bible. But not typically with Gentiles. Okay, so even before Cornelius and his family are converted, which we'll get to, we begin to see a shifting here in how God is dealing with both the Jews and the Gentiles. Christ's work on the cross has been done, and now he's beginning to reveal. And here we see an angel of God come to a Gentile in a vision and give him a mission to carry out into new territory. And interestingly enough, while this is going on, we know that Peter is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, which we're told in chapter 9 at the end and here in chapter 10. That's significant because tanners worked with the hides of dead animals to make leather goods. And working with dead animals meant that Simon the Tanner was ceremonially unclean. And here's Peter, a good, clean Jew, staying at the tanner's house. Okay, God was already beginning to foreshadow 
through his instructions to Cornelius and Peter, the decisive shift in his redemptive work that would now beckon all of humanity to come and bow at the feet of Jesus. Where regardless of our past, our previous associations, our rebellion against everything good, no matter how soiled by sin and despair, the broken and hopelessly unclean could now fall at his feet just as the prodigal son returning to the father from living in the filth of every imaginable sin, we could now ask for forgiveness and immediately be accepted, grafted into the family of God as if we'd always been there. This is new territory. And it is such a beautifully important part of our story because it is the removal of the bifurcation, the, uh, the separation of Jew and Gentile, chosen and outcast, clean and unclean, this is the defining point of origin for our story as Gentiles, once hopelessly lost, now included into the gospel story. And again, this was new territory for Cornelius, certainly, and for Peter, as we'll see. It wasn't normal for a Roman soldier, uh, particularly of one uh, of such high esteem, to invite a Jew to his home to speak to him. And to be sure, this isn't something that Cornelius would have ever done by his own choosing. And Peter certainly wouldn't have gone. But for the voice of God. Because when he speaks, he guides us into new territory. And, and look, sometimes that means for us, you know, selling all your stuff and packing up the U-Haul and you head out into some great unknown. If that's what God is telling you, that's what he told me and my family five years ago. We had no idea all that would transpire after that, but God spoke, and He was guiding us into new territory because there was a church in Alaska that we needed to be trained in, and they needed our leadership. And there's a, a, a seminary in England that I needed to attend. There's a church in Traveler's Rest that we needed to plant. We couldn't have predicted any of that, but it all happened because God spoke, and we listened. He guided us into new territory. That's our story. It may not be yours. Cornelius wasn't told to quit his job and move. For him, the new territory meant staying right where he was geographically, but moving into a whole new world when it came to his associations. He was being directed uh, to open himself and his family up to something entirely new, right? Let's invite this Jew into our... Can you hear the conversation between Cornelius and his family? We're going to invite this Jew into our home and let him teach us. This was definitely new territory for Cornelius and Peter. Your new territory is wherever the Holy Spirit leads you. And that could mean many things. But the point is, he's always guiding us into new places, uh, new ministry opportunities, new relationships, new challenges, new commitments. And so if you're going to heed the voice of God in your life, you must be prepared to move into new territory because God isn't sitting still and he doesn't intend for you to either. We either grow spiritually or we become static. And left to stagnate long enough, we develop spiritual atrophy. We become spiritually weak, largely ineffective actually. And worst of all, when we're spiritually idle, we're no longer following Christ because he's always moving. And the longer that we sit still, the greater the distance between us and Him. And I can just tell you, it's much harder to hear someone's voice when they're far away than when you're right next to them. 
So hearing God's voice means keeping in step with Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit guides us into new territory. Our part is being willing to go when and where he directs us, okay? When God speaks, he guides into new territory. The second lesson that we learn in this story here is that when God speaks, he gives us new information. In other words, if God is speaking, uh, you'll rarely hear him state the obvious. Why? Because it's obvious, right? At some point in your life, we were all taught that stealing was wrong. And so, by now, that's ingrained in us, that truth. That is an obvious bit of information at this stage in our life. So if I'm at Cabela's, uh, staring at a new fly rod that I really want, but I know that I can't afford, which, by the way, is a situation that I find myself in often, <laughs> there's really no need for me to pray and ask God to speak to me whether or not I should steal that fly rod, right? Why? Because the answer is obvious. I don't need him to tell me what he's already taught me. I could. I could pray, Dear Father, you said that you would give me the desires of my heart. And this fly rod is definitely a desire of my heart. But I can't afford it. So please speak to me now and tell me if it's okay for me to take it anyway. I can assure you, I'm not going to hear his voice in that moment. I might hear a voice, but it won't be his. Because he's given us intellect and reason and common sense and morality and basic understanding to process obvious information that we've been taught on our own. God doesn't need to tell you the obvious. On the contrary, when we need to hear his voice are those times when the next step is anything but obvious. Those times when we don't know what to do next. That's when we seek His voice for revelation, which is simply another way of saying new information. And this is what we see happening with Peter in our story. Okay, let's keep reading, starting in verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, this revelation for Peter, this is definitely new information. None of this is obvious. All right, at this point in history, uh, in Hebrew culture, a strict Jew wouldn't allow himself to be a guest in a Gentile home. Neither would he uh, invite one to be a guest in his home. In fact, there was a scribal law that said that all of the homes of all of the Gentiles were unclean. And the Jews took this very seriously. They believed that the dirt from a Gentile country was also considered unclean. So much so that if anyone happened to track some Gentile dirt into Israel, they believed that the dirt would always remain defiled. It could never mingle with Israel's soil. In their view, it just continually defiled 
the dirt of Israel. So whenever Jewish travelers left a, a Gentile country, they would shake the dust off their feet so they wouldn't bring Gentile dirt into Israel. Can you imagine? We know that when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples to preach the gospel, he told them that if anyone didn't receive them or heed their words, they were to shake the dust off their feet, Matthew 10, 14. In other words, treat them as if they're Gentiles. The Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean in every way, and that belief carried with it uh, very real consequences. Milk that was drawn from a cow by a Gentile was not allowed to be consumed by Jews. Bread and oil prepared by a Gentile could be sold to a stranger but never used by a Jew. No Jew would ever eat with a Gentile. And if a Gentile ever was uh, in a Jewish house, he couldn't be left there for any period of time because just by being there, he would defile all of the food in the house. If cooking utensils were bought from a Gentile, they had to be purified by fire and water before they could be used. You're getting the picture. This wasn't simply an odd command by God to Peter. This was completely new and, quite frankly, shocking information. So much so that Peter doesn't even fully understand yet because the concept of taking something as precious and valuable as the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people who in the eyes of the Jews were one step away from animals, would have been unfathomable. At this point, Peter's having trouble considering that God would even have him eat something unclean. He can't even begin to appreciate what God is really saying here. And I believe that there are people that live their entire lives and never fully realize their potential in Christ because they can't believe that God would ever ask them to do something risky, something counter to the culture, something that makes them uncomfortable or unpopular, right? something that maybe isn't uh, not only not obvious, but far beyond what we could ever imagine doing. And so it may be that the extraordinary tasks that have been allotted for us to accomplish for the sake of Jesus Christ are assigned to others who are willing to say yes to the voice of God when we are not. Jesus chose 12 disciples, not only to accomplish his purposes here on earth, but also to judge the 12 tribes of Israel in the hereafter. Judas was one of those original 12, and he rejected the voice of Jesus in his life. But that didn't derail the plan of God. We still ended up with 12 disciples because Judas was replaced by one who was willing to say yes. Yes to the hard life the much more challenging way, the narrow path, the life full of risks and unknowns that Judas rejected. Okay? You'll rarely hear God's voice stating the obvious, telling you what you already know. But if you'll listen, you'll hear him telling you to do things that you may have never thought possible in your life. Because he doesn't intend for us to stand still. And his chief concern is not our comfort. It is rather his will being accomplished through us. In the first century, his will being accomplished meant Christians being persecuted and martyred so that the gospel could be spread to the ends of the earth. That doesn't sound so appealing. I understand. But at the end of the day, God is going to achieve 
His purposes. And He can do that through us or through someone else. But either way, His plan is going to unfold. And our personal comfort probably isn't uh, the greatest priority in that plan. In fact, our discomfort is often a big part of how He shapes us into the men and women that He wants us to be. I had a guy recently who claims to be a follower of Christ tell me that he, he's never really loved his wife of 20 years. And he openly admitted that she has been a great wife to him and never mistreated him in any way. He just doesn't feel attracted to her. And since he knows that God wants him to be happy, he said to me that he believes it's God's will for him to leave his wife and find somebody new. To be honest, I wanted to hold him down in the corner and beat him up. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not a part of my calling as a pastor. So I told him in no uncertain terms, you know, you're treading on thin ice with God. And you're in open rebellion toward him and your wife. And we talked about what he should do next. And honestly, based on his responses, I doubt it made any difference whatsoever. But I want to ask you, do you think that God is more concerned about this man feeling happy or honoring the sacred covenant of marriage that he entered into 20 years ago? I know there's abuse, right? There's systematic, chronic adultery. There are things where God, you understand, I'm not talking about all divorce, and I know that people experience that. And there are places in Scripture where God gives us and out in extreme situations. There's forgiveness, absolutely, okay? I have no doubt, though, in this situation, if this man had chosen to do the right thing, if he chooses to do the right thing and honor God and his wife and his marriage, no matter how unhappy he may feel now, I have no doubt that over time he can mature and become a champion for Christ and in the end, through God working in him, that he can be happier with his life and marriage than he could ever hope to be if he were to leave that relationship that he made a commitment to all those years ago. In fact, God can use those feelings of discontentment and unhappiness to shape this man into someone who could teach others about commitment and faithfulness in marriages that are struggling. Right? Or he can bail out on his family and on God to focus instead on his own happiness and be of little use in God's service. Okay? Does God want us to be happy? Of course He does. Does He work in our lives for the sake of our happiness? Without question. And He forgives us for our mistakes and our sin. By His love and grace. And He allows us to continue in Him. And I am personally, I guarantee you, as grateful for that in my own life as any of you in this room. I'm, I am chief among sinners. The least deserving of God's grace in my life. Okay? And He is so gracious to forgive. And He is concerned about our happiness. Yes, absolutely. But the point is, our personal happiness should never be the sole priority in major life decisions that we make because there's often far more at stake than our personal happiness and our spiritual growth at times may actually benefit from some measure of discomfort and struggle. So personal happiness should never be the sole measuring stick that we use to determine the way forward in life, okay? 
It should be rather the voice of God. And often that will mean new information. And when I talk about revelation and new information, you understand I'm not talking about adding to Scripture. Okay, I'm referring to guidance for your, your daily life about where to go, who to see, what to say, what to do next. And, and that is a pattern from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets, the apostles, all throughout Scripture. We see the Holy Spirit always leading us forward into new territory with a fresh set of instructions, revelation, new information that once heeded will lead us into the life that He's intended for each one of us since long before we were born. Even though we may not fully understand or be able to see the entire picture from the beginning. Okay? And that leads us to our final point today. When God speaks, He calls us to action. Sometimes God tells us to move, but we can't see the end of the path. We're not sure of the outcome. We can't predict the result of our actions or where we might end up. But if God is speaking, we have to go. Clearly, as we'll see in our text here, Peter didn't fully understand God's instructions. But nonetheless, when God told Peter to go, he got up and went. Let's continue from verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. So here we see Peter still not fully understanding what God is doing, responding favorably to these unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles, which again was completely unheard of in that day. Uh, the great scholar John Stott said, It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on one hand and the Gentiles, including even the God-fearers on the other. And yet here we see Peter inviting them in for the night. Why did Peter respond the way that he did? Because he trusted the voice of God. Even though he didn't fully understand it in the moment. God was calling on Peter. And it was a call to action. Let's keep reading. Starting on the back half of verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And... On the following day they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Okay, in the original Greek language, that phrase, I too am a man, we can translate that as, I'm the same as you. Right? Peter wasn't simply saying, I too am a human being. He was saying, you and me, we're the same. This is a clear indication that Peter was beginning to understand the path that he was on and the gravity of what God was beginning to do through him. Because here's Peter now recognizing that in God's eyes, he was no different than this uncircumcised Gentile. 
Okay, let's not miss the lesson here. Concerning God, sometimes obedience precedes understanding. Sometimes obedience comes before understanding. In fact, very often, the understanding that we seek comes by way of our obedience. That's why the man who wants to leave his wife to find happiness needs to shelf his own happiness for a while in submission to obedience so that God can accomplish his purposes in that man and in that relationship. The understanding will assuredly come later. Okay? When it comes to God, sometimes obedience precedes understanding. That's important. And we see here in our story, Peter is now beginning to understand his calling as he's obedient to the Father's will. Let's keep reading verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Again, Peter moves forward with God. Right? He's beginning to understand. The picture becomes clear. Let's read some more. Verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we're all here in the presence of God, to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth. And said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Okay, in verse 34 it says, Peter opened his mouth. Now that's a, that phrase is a Hebrew idiom. It was used to describe someone who was about to begin teaching. It's the same phrase that was used in Matthew 5.2 when Jesus is about to start the Sermon on the Mount. And so Peter is about to do what is otherwise unthinkable to the Jewish people. He's about to teach these Gentiles about Jesus. And just before he shares the gospel with them, he says, Now I get it. It all makes sense now. God shows no partiality to anyone who submits their lives to Him. And so here in these first 35 verses of chapter 10, we see God speaking to Peter and Cornelius as He guides them into new territory. And then He, he reveals new information to Peter. Information that is confounding, almost unbelievable. And then as Peter, he calls him to action, we see the light bulb gradually coming on in Peter's mind and his heart as the story unfolds. From this initial objection to God's suggestion that he even eats something unclean, to his obedience in entertaining these Gentile strangers all the way up to this world-changing and and paradigm-shattering moment where Peter shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with a house full of unclean Gentiles. These verses of chapter 10 are a master class on hearing and heeding the voice of God. 
He speaks to us in many different ways through visions and meditations and the scriptures. Certainly the Holy Spirit's voice within us. Sometimes through other people. In fact, there's a whole other sermon uh, for that subject for another day. And there are different factors involved in how do I hear the voice of God? Many outlined in these same verses. Honoring God in our daily lives, as we see with Cornelius, it's a major factor in hearing God's voice. Hungering for God, there are great parallels there as we see with Peter. Obeying God as Peter and, and Cornelius both did as he called them out. And then that's also another sermon for another day. But the lesson for us today is being prepared for new territory and new information and then being ready to move when God speaks. Because his voice is as active today in the lives of his followers as it ever has been. But my concern for the church today is that we're not hearing it like we could or heeding it like we should because we're comfortably numb or drunk on our own desire for comfort, personal happiness and security. It's good to be blessed. But sometimes we let that get in the way of doing what we should. When he speaks, we allow our desire to remain comfortable, override our desire to please him, which is why he sometimes, I think, allows us to become very uncomfortable. Generally speaking, our greatest periods of spiritual growth come during our greatest periods of struggle and hardship. And yet I believe we could avoid some of that if we would keep our ears attuned to his voice and be ready to move every time God speaks. And in John 5.30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, this is Jesus, but the will of him who sent me. This is our example to live by. I can do nothing on my own. I, I only act as I hear. Because I'm not seeking my own will. I'm seeking, I'm listening instead for His will. So I just want to close the service today by praying that we would tune our eyes and ears and hearts and minds to His voice above all others. And that each of us would begin to walk fully in obedience to his will and his calling in our lives. You know, it, the Bible says his calling and the gifts are irrevocable. I don't care where you are today. You've never gone beyond where God can bring you back, right back onto the path that he's designed for you. You've never sat still or wandered far enough away from God that he can't bring you back. To where he wants you. Because the calling and the gifts are irrevocable. As long as you're breathing. There's hope. I'm praying that we will walk in full obedience. To his will. And the calling in our lives. And as we do that in unity. I'm praying that the church would begin to influence. And affect. This culture around us. Like never before. Okay. Let's pray. Jeannie, would you...